I, I said to somebody recently that like I know it's really popular to rag on millennials, but I, I don't want to hear about it anymore. Like I can't think of another generation that's lived through crisis after crisis like millennials have. We lived through a global pandemic. The first one in 100 years. And it feels like every few months there's a new variant. So I don't want to hear anything else about millennials. Because there's also potential for World War III. There's mass shootings which people seem like they don't want to do anything about. There's political turmoil on left and right. Racial tensions are high. We've had racial riots and all kinds of things happening. And like, how many of you are really excited to hear about the reemergence of monkeypox? Anyone? <laughs> Gas prices are probably going to be over $6 a gallon this summer. And a recession is probably on the horizon. So like, I don't want to hear anybody rag about millennials anymore. And not only that, in terms of our faith, it feels like Christianity is being assaulted. <laughs> we used to have friends on both sides. Now it seems that on the right, we're assaulted by nationalism. And on the left, we're assaulted by activism. And this has all been in the past two and a half years. Not to mention what we've already lived through. 9-11 and the war on terror living through, or not to mention we're probably facing our second recession because we lived through one before and the housing collapse of the early 2000s, and how many of you are excited that you can't really buy a house right now? Everything feels like a crisis, so let's give millennials a break, all right? Myself, being a millennial, I would just like a break. And it just feels like everywhere we look, there's another shoe about to drop. And there's like no end in sight. But something's got to give, right? Something's got to give. Something is shifting. Do you feel that? Like, do you feel it deep in your bones and in your heart? And when you look at the news or when you look at social media, like something is shifting. Something is different. Something is moving. And it feels like at some point somebody's going to flick a switch and we'll be in this new era. Mark Sayers, he has this chart in one of his books. And every time I read Mark Sayers, I'm like, why don't I read more Mark Sayers? So let me reward that. You should read Mark Sayers. But he says this, we have not entered a new era. Instead, we have entered an in-between place a gray zone. Gray zones exist in the overlap of two eras. They contain the influence of both the passing and the forming era. And this makes gray zones confusing and contradictory. You see what he's saying? He's like, we're not in a new era. We're feeling the pool of the past one and the pool of the, the future one, the coming one. And that's why we all feel confused and we're struggling. And you might look and like, I feel like we're crazy at times. And that's where the people in Judges find themselves. Verse 1 of Judges says this, after the death of Joshua. 
Starts off the book that way. Heads up after the death of Joshua. And it ends with this verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, they're experiencing the gray zone. The era of Moses and Joshua has passed, and a forming, coming era of the kings, is starting with David, is on the horizon. But they're in the middle, and they feel the tension. So like us, they find themselves in a gray zone, and that gray zone is what we call judges. Judges, teenagers, if you think about judges, don't think about like guys dressed in black robes. Judges are more like military chieftains. Right? They're like tribal leaders who make decisions, but they also are pretty awesome and they fight people. But frankly, these judges, as the book of Judges goes, these judges, because of their own sinfulness, go from good to okay to bad. And the book of Judges is not like your summer reading book. It's like, it's not like, it doesn't match the tone of my shirt right now. I like flowery and exciting. Maybe you don't like my shirt, but that's what I'm, how I see it. But Judges is, is a dark, it becomes a dark and disturbing read. And you're left with that last verse that there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But what Judges is trying to show us is that God is still working. That God is still working in the gray zone and the people of God still have a job to do in the gray zone. Which we'll see from Judges is that they fail to do so and they disobey. And we'll see from this whole series the main theme that disobedience has disturbing results. By the end of Judges, you can't tell the difference between God's people and the pagans. You can't tell the difference. Do some of you feel that right now in our world? You can't tell the difference between people who claim to be God's people and everyone else? Christians are in the gray zone right now. But here's the deal. God Put this time on your watch and on my watch. So can we stop the oh ho hum? Oh man, life is so difficult and crazy and sad, and we're you know, oh man, I can't believe this is happening and this is happening. Oh, you believe this politician and that politician? Oh, God put this time on your watch. Oh, I can't believe we live in a pandemic. Oh, when are we going to take masks off? Oh, I can't believe this workplace is having me to get a vaccine, but this place doesn't let me make me have a vaccine. God put this time on your watch. And if he wanted somebody else to handle it, if he wanted another group of Christians to handle it, he would have put them in this place, but he put us in this place. Us. He picked you. He picked me to be his people in the gray zone. And what he's trying to show is he's saying, excuse me, I'm still working in the gray zone. Oh, we live in a godless society. Oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. No, God's saying, I'm here right now working in the gray zone. Pay attention to me. And he said, I gave you a job to do. And one of those jobs... Judges tells us 
is to resist compromising our faith in this generation so that our faith will continue in the next. We must resist compromising our faith in this generation so that it will continue on to the next. Judges 2, 7 through 8 says this, and the people served the Lord all the days of who? Joshua. But Joshua died. Served all the people, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and the days of the elders who lived outlived Joshua. All right, good. Great start. But we know from verse 1, Joshua died. And then verse 10 says this. And all of the generation were gathered to their fathers, I mean they all died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. What we do in this gray zone matters to the future generations of Christians. It matters to future generations of this world. As I was preparing my sermon this week, I had lunch with a fr- my friend Larry Walker, who's one of the leaders at Liberty River Wards. And he, we were hanging out at his house at Port Richmond. He homeschools his kids, so his kids are like already done school, which is awesome, I guess. Um, and as we're talking, his 13-year-old just comes and he sits at the table with us just to listen to hear us talk. And we're at that point talking about the book of Judges. And I was explaining how in Judges, within three generations, God's people go from knowing God intimately and personally through Moses and Joshua to not knowing him at all. And my friend turns to Larry, my friend Larry turns to his son and asks, could you imagine a world where no one believes in Jesus? And I thought, how devastating is that? How devastating a thought. A world without Christians? God forbid. Can you imagine a world without Christians? A world without the people of God gathering to worship him. A world without people sharing the gospel in word and deed. A world without people who love God, who know God intimately and personally, who have a relationship with him, and a desire that others would love him and know his love too. See, the people of God are always in danger of leaving behind a generation that does not know God. Look at verse 10 again in your Bibles. It does not say, and there arose another generation after them who did not know about the Lord, about Yahweh, or the work he had done for Israel. No, it says they didn't know Yahweh. They didn't have a relationship with him. So how could we end up with a world without Christians? By compromising on the responsibility God has given us to pass our faith on to the next generation. So Christians in the gray zone must resist compromise. God's people compromise in verse, in chapter 1, but if you look at chapter 1, verse 28, it says this, when Israel grew strong, which is a really interesting point. God tells the Israelites they have to wipe out the Canaanites. And this says when Israel was strong, not when they were weak, they put the Canaanites to what? Forced labor. They didn't wipe them out. They could have said, oh, we're weak, small people. We really can't do it. No, it's when they were strong, they decided to put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. 
So chapter 2, verse 1 says this, Now the angel of the Lord went up to Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into a land that I swore to your, give to your father. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. I will not drive the Canaanites out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. If we want Christians, if we want Christ followers in the future, we must resist compromise in the present. When I hear the word compromise, I can't help but think of the Office episode, Conflict Resolution. And if you know the episode, some of you are laughing already, there's a lot of conflict in the office, and so Michael, the boss, decides to take it all on, he tries to resolve everyone's dis- disputes, and it's a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. But he gets this workbook at one point, and he's sitting down with Oscar and Angela, and he's going through this workbook, and the workbook gives him like five types of conflict resolution. I don't know if you remember this, if you've seen the episode. Anybody see the episode? All right, good. Like three of you. So in the episode, they're going through it, and they get to one point where one style of conflict resolution is compromised, and they found out that that is a lose-lose situation. What they really want is a what? A win-win-win situation where everybody wins, including the conflict resolver, right? The mediator. But compromise is a lose-lose situation. A compromise, when we compromise one's faith, when we compromise our faith, it is a lose-lose situation. Our faith loses and the world loses. Because no Christians are around to tell them about God's love, about their need to turn from sin, about how God can free them from guilt and shame and death and the devil. What we don't see in the office is that what really happens when we compromise our faith it vanishes. If crisis reveals character, then what we see from Israel and judges is that their character is one of compromise. The crisis revealed their character was the compromise. And they go from a compromising faith to a vanishing one. Teenagers, students, God, the Bible tells that God rescued Israel from Egypt. God gave them the land of Palestine. But as a response to his rescue and his gift, they're responsible. They were asked to wipe out the Canaanites in that land. And the Canaanites worshipped the god Baal and the goddess Ashereth. And Yahweh told Israel to wipe out these people groups because if they didn't, they'd be seduced into worshipping their gods and their faith could vanish. Now, I know you might be hearing that like as a 21st century person, and a lot of times your college professors will do this kind of thing, this move as well, and they'll say, okay, so what? Like, people are allowed to believe in different gods. That's not really not that big of a deal. We're good Americans. They should be allowed to do that. And it seems extreme to kill innocent people who believe differently than us. But the Canaanites weren't innocent. The Bible tells us that when people worship other gods, they're actually worshiping demons. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 10.20. And the Canaanites worship 
also include not only worship of demons, but their worshiping includes fortune-telling, it includes mediums, it includes sorcery. And that also the Bible tells us that their worship also included child sacrifices. They actually sacrificed their children to their gods. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14 says that. And so they were sacrificing their sons and daughters to demons. That's the Bible's getting at. And their worship actually also included sleeping with temple prostitutes. So despite the picture that your college professor might want to paint about the Bible, the Canaanites were a demon-worshipping, baby-sacrificing, sexually immoral people. And Yahweh loves Israel so much that he doesn't want the Canaanites to be left in the land that he gave to the Israelites. Because if they're there, Israel will be tempted to compromise and participate in their demon-worshipping, baby-sacrificing, sexually immoral religion. But even so, we find out what happens is exactly what God says will happen. The Bible's funny that way. What God says will happen, will happen. Verse 11, chapter 2, pick it up. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Yahweh gave Israel what they wanted. God loves us enough to give us what we want. If we don't want to fully obey God, if Israel didn't want to fully obey God and they wanted to leave Canaanites around and they wanted to compromise, God says, okay, then you can have the consequences of that too. See, in the gray zone, they had the opportunity to double down on faithfulness to Yahweh's covenant with them, but they chose instead to compromise it. See, a world without Christians is closer than you think. The world without Christians is closer than I think. It's always one generation away. If we compromise, if we run the risk, we run the risk of leaving our children and our grandchildren in a world that may know about Jesus, but not know him personally. And listen, I have great concerns over things in the world. I have great concerns over nationalism on the right, I have great concerns over activism on the left. I have concerns about what's being taught in public schools and universities. I have concerns about legalism in Christian schools and universities. I have concerns about things like Pride Month. I have real concerns about it. I have real concerns about abortion, unchecked, as we seem to have right now. I'm concerned about patriarchy in the home or greed in business. And these are all legitimate concerns. 
And if you're like me, these concerns are overwhelming and they can be debilitating. And although these are threats, the Bible makes it clear that the biggest threat to my kids' faith is me. Me. Those are all real threats. But the biggest threat to your kids' faith is you. Dads especially. Dads' kids statistically will choose their mother's religion but their dad's church attendance. Why? Because it matters. The fact of the matter is our kids are going to be discipled by something or someone. And the war for the hearts of the next generation of Christ followers will be lost in our world if we lose the battles at home. Don't start pointing out to the things of the world if your home's a mess. Please don't do that. Everybody sees what you're doing. Oh, they're godless. They should be doing this. Oh, we should be doing this. We should, be, we should bring the nation back to Jesus. But if your house isn't, Jesus is in the center of your house, it's not going to matter. The war for the coming era is won and lost by the battles in the gray zone. You want the coming era to be Christians living out the Great Commission, loving Jesus, spreading the gospel and word and deed, the battles for that future war, that future era, are won and lost here where we're at right now. And the fact of the matter is, is our concerns can be overwhelming, and so we can, take, we can take the task of discipleship to this passing on of faith to our kids. It's a lot of pressure, absolutely, in a world that's increasingly hostile to it. And we feel like we have to be constantly on our toes. Don't you parents feel like you have to constantly be on your toes? But even if we are, we're only human. And we'll miss things. And if you're like me, when I'm hit by the overwhelming nature of my concerns and the pressure of my responsibility, what I do is I pull back and I compromise. I don't take discipleship the entire way. And like Israel, who won't wipe out the Canaanites, we make them our servants. You take your kids up to the finish line, but you're unwilling to get them across it. And I think a lot of times when we talk about compromise in Christian circles, what we think about is, oh, we need to make sure we're paying attention to what our kids watch on Netflix. And that's true. You should. Or we have to be careful about who we allow to be their friends or what we expose them to. And all those are good concerns and they're all good things to think about. But if that's what makes or break discipleship for our children, we're off-based. And frankly, it's lazy discipleship. The make or break for discipling our kids is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's how you and I live our lives. We compromise not in what we allow or what we don't allow our kids to do. That's not where it's won and lost. Where it's won and lost, we compromise by what we do and don't do. Our kids will know what's important by what I make important. Look at me. Your kids will know what's important 
based on what you make important. So if I say my faith is important, but I schedule our lives around getting them to soccer, rather than getting them to church, I'm telling my kids, they're the gods that I serve. Them. If I say my faith is important, but you're, if you say your faith is important, but you are too busy to serve at church because you don't have time, you're telling your kids your schedule is the God that you serve. If you say your faith is important, if we say our faith is important, but we're not generous with our finances, we're telling our kids our money is the God we serve. If we say faith is important, but we don't pray with our kids, or we don't apologize when we hurt them, or we never answer their spiritual questions and we blow off their doubts, we're telling them we serve other gods by our actions. And then we wonder why kids grow up and don't go to church. Because dad didn't go to church. It wasn't important for my dad's. You know, he was all right. He was a good guy. We wonder why kids grow up and they don't serve or they don't give, or they don't pray. Because we didn't. And listen, of course, listen. Of course you can live your life as a faithful Christian and still produce unfaithful Christians. That happens. Absolutely happens. And vice versa. You can live unfaithfully, and God is gracious enough to bring out faithful Christians. Happens all the time. But statistically, it's very likely your kids will serve the God or gods that you serve. Because while what I, we say is important, what we say is important, if it's not followed up with consistency in what we do, that's where the compromise happens. And what we do will be what our kids will think what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. If being a disciple of Jesus means I only attend one out of every three Sundays, that's what they're going to think it means to be a disciple of Jesus. If we, they, if we don't give what God asks us to give, and we spend our money on everything else, we're telling our kids, this is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. Do everything else, and then give God the leftovers. If we say, hey, forgiveness is important, and confessing your sins is important, but when mom yells at the kids angrily and goes way too harsh at the kids and refuses to apologize for it. We're telling our kids, forgiveness doesn't really matter. It only matters sometimes as a disciple of Jesus. Confession only matters sometimes. It only takes a couple of generations for there to be a world without Christians because we compromised. But the good news you might be here and like, thanks, Evan. Really appreciate the pressure. There is good news that despite our compromising in our faith and passing that kind of compromising faith down to our children, despite our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. What happens in verse 16, despite Israel's unfaithfulness, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. God cares about the next generation, even when we fail to care for them. See, it's extremely important how we handle the gray zone we find ourselves in. 
but our best efforts are only so good because we're sinners. We're going to miss stuff. We're going to fail. We're going to go too harsh at the kids and, for, and not apologize and double down on, I'm dad, how dare you question me? But thankfully, we serve a God, a great God who cares about the coming era, even if we're not around to see it. So a world without Christians is possible if it were simply up to us. But it's not simply up to us. And the truth is, because there are kids, they're likely going to compromise too. Like the, I say this all the time. Why would you think your kids are going to change the world? You didn't. They're sinners just like you. They're going to mess up just like you. So don't be surprised when your kids have the same sins patterns you have or different ones. They just paint it differently. So Judges 2.19 says, but whenever the judge died, what the people do? They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Our kids are going to mess up too. It's going to happen. Because of sin, we're going to compromise. We're going to fail. And our kids and grandkids will fail too. And they'll mess up too. And even if the next generation are compromisers like us, here's the good news. God doesn't abandon them. God doesn't abandon his people. He doesn't abandon them in the gray zone. He doesn't, have, like he didn't abandon them in the passing era. And he's not going to abandon them in the coming one either. How do we know this? Because despite the failure on behalf of the unfaithful Israelites, there comes this faithful Israelite who doesn't compromise in any way, who obeys God completely and perfectly, and who is punished on behalf of the Israelite for their failures, even though he did nothing wrong. And not just their failures, but ours as well. There was a faithful Israelite who was punished for the sins of the passing era and the sins of the coming one. And this faithful Israelite was Jesus. And he's not just a faithful Israelite, he's God himself. And he's the perfect judge. And so while the judges will get more and more disturbing, the perfect judge becomes more and more worthy of worship. And he will care and protect his people, their children and their grandchildren, and he will never fail us. So we might fail our kids, but Jesus will never fail them, just like he never fails us. And because of Jesus, God will never abandon you, and he won't abandon our kids and our grandkids. And he gives us the Holy Spirit, any of us who put our faith and trust in him, and with it comes the power to pass on our faith to our children, despite our compromising selves. Think about this. Where are the apostles on Pentecost? They're hiding. Hiding! And what does God do despite that? He sends the Holy Spirit. And they get all filled up with the Holy Spirit. These compromising, messed up people. Like, and Peter, the most messed up, betrays Jesus, the first one to proclaim the gospel to everyone in Jerusalem. God didn't abandon them, even though they abandoned him. Friday night and Saturday, when I spent time with my boys, 
at Father Son overnight at Camp Haycock. It's a Christian camp about an hour or so away. And the first night we get there, all the dads and their sons, we meet on this outside pavilion for worship. And I looked around and I watched dads and their sons singing and shouting and praising God and hearing the gospel preached to them. And I thought, these dads are pressing into faithfulness in the gray zone. They're saying the world is scary and confusing and crazy at times. I'm going to press in to faithfulness. And they aren't satisfied sitting back and letting their kids be discipled by the world. And they're doing their best not to compromise. And then I had a thought after that. Why did I pick Haycock? Because I went there as a boy on father's son trips. And my dad, who sat next to me, with, next to my boys, had invested in me. But also, other Christian men invested in me as camp counselors there. See, gray, Christians in the gray zone must press into faithfulness, not away from it. We don't withdraw, we press forward and in. I have a friend who once said to me, there are always children in the kingdom of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, whether you have biological kids or not, it doesn't matter. You have children to take care of. When the, where the Israelites were commanded to wipe out the nations, what are we commanded to do? To disciple them. Matthew 28, 19-20 says, Go therefore, Jesus says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, you and I aren't called to remove the nations from the people of God, but we're called to bring them in. By sharing the gospel, by baptizing and discipling them. And when we do that, we have children, young and old who need discipling. So there are children all around you, Christians, there are children all around you who need faithful Christians, Christians just trying their best to be faithful who are pressing into the gray zone. Teenagers, there are younger kids here watching you. They're watching you. They look up to you. What are you showing them by your actions? Are you showing them that you serve God or some other God? Adults in this church, there are spiritual children everywhere, not just biological ones, not just ones by age, who are looking to you to show them how to live, to press into faithfulness in the gray zone, to model for them, so that when the time comes and the shift to the coming era happens, they know how to live as faithful followers of Jesus. You ever notice, why does Paul say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Because it's a lot easier to imitate Paul than to imitate Christ. It's a lot easier to imitate you than to imitate Jesus. But if you're imitating Jesus, there's a beeline straight to him as well. So what are we showing the children, the spiritual children that we have with our actions? What God are we showing them we serve? Are we showing them we serve Jesus or another one? See, I don't know about you, but I don't want to picture the coming era by the church's failures in the gray zone. So it's important that we're faithful in discipling our biological and spiritual children. 
But I also take great comfort knowing that even as Judges gets particularly dark and disturbing, God is still faithful to his people. He's still working so that despite me, despite you, God remains faithful to the next generation, despite us and in spite of us. So while it doesn't remove the responsibility from me, it relieves the pressure. Because by God's grace, there will never be a world without Christians. Let's pray. If you're here today, and before we pray, if, with everyone's eyes closed and heads bowed, if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, and you're standing outside of God's family, I just want to give you a moment to enter into it. All you have to do is just say, Jesus, silently, just say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I've messed up and I've sinned. Forgive me and help me to trust you. And for the rest of us, Father, as we are trying our best to pass on our faith to our children, may we not compromise. Help us to not lay off the responsibility, but help us to know that the pressure is relieved. Because you ultimately you are gracious and loving and care about the next generation even more than we do. And so we pray that we be faithful. We press into faithfulness in this gray zone. Be with us as we finish, as we continue to go throughout Judges, as we finish our service today. We pray you be with us and walk with us, especially as we come to the table. And it's Jesus' name we pray. Amen.